This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. And with brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Sorta Gen Con. Kinda the Toronto Film Fest. Applicability in game design. And steampunkness in 1870s Romania. Robin, what's better than dinosaurs? Hmm, I don't think there is anything better than dinosaurs. How about dinosaurs plus 5e? Sold! Well, get ready, because the 5e prehistoric campaign setting, Plain Gia, is on Kickstarter now from Atlas Games. Wait, didn't they make Niambi and Northern Crown too? Yes, for third edition, plus Penumbra, so you know it's going to be excellent. Tell me more. Plangea is the prehistoric fantasy campaign setting for 5e, offering endless adventures in a vast, brutal world. Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe. It has everything you love about 5e, but reimagined for a primal, prehistoric world. Plus dinosaurs. Live on Kickstarter until October 7th. Search for Plangea. That's plain as an airplane, then G-E-A. It's time to bring back a hut that you may not have uh, heard of for quite a while. You may have forgotten that this hut exists. I think I may have forgotten that it exists. And that, of course, is the travel advisory, where one or both of us go on a trip, and then we tell you all about it, because trips, I'm not going to say back, but kind of back, sort of. And in this case, the trip that is sort of back, Ken, is your trip to Gen Con, and, and the sort of is extra applicable since a Gen Con at which uh, you are there and I am not is, uh, in my mind, a sort of Gen Con, exactly. not even really a, a Gen Con at all. So I'm going to get you to tell me about this thing called Gen Con. Of course, it's not occurring in its usual time slot. And it was not. Also, uh, it was, I assume, a, but a fraction of the usual attendees. And those uh, attendees were uh, wearing masks for safety reasons. So, Ken, how was Master Gen Con? You are correct. It was uh, not even half a Gen Con. The official number is 35,000 attendees. I mostly spent my Gen Con Gen Con part on the sales floor at the IPR booth representing Pelgrane Press to the assembled not particular throng. It was only about half the size of what Gen Con was a few years ago. So in one sense, and in a lot of senses, it felt like the biggest origins ever. <laughs> I mean, it, you you do have to, and this is something I noticed at Dragon Con, that when people are not jammed to the gills in the walk spaces, they take a little more time to slow down and talk to you. So you can do some, you know, pretty good sales and some pretty good customer stuff that you can't maybe do at big full Gen Con. So there was some of that. Uh, everyone that I saw on the sales floor, on the exhibit hall, was indeed, as you say, masked 99.9%. Every now and again, you get the sort of, you know, halfway masker that has it not over their nose for whatever dumb reason. It's still uncomfortable, but now you've also, you're not even masked. What the hell? But most of the people were all masked up, some of them with very clever, you know, fun fandom typey masks. Uh, others just sort There's of- There's a mask play? Struggling through life as uh, most of us were. Indianapolis and Indiana do not have a mask 
mandate. So once you got to the hotel, it was, you know, ollie ollie oxen free. So that was that. But again, you know, it's only it's 35,000 people. We had, what was that, 10 times that number in Chicago for Lala, and we had barely 200 cases. So maybe not a super spreader event. Who can say? I'm not an epidemiologist or even a virologist, nor do I play one on Twitter. Yes, yeah, so let's hope with, yeah. with vaccination and masks that these things are safe, but I would think probably less fun. Yeah, well, they're definitely less fun. I can, I can promise you that. Uh, as a result, the only off-grid thing that I did was to host the Any Awards or sort of co-host it with the uh, great uh, Misha Bushyager and the great uh, Mike Pondsmith beaming in electronically. So that was good fun. I was sort of the the guy at the desk. I was Jim McKay, if you will, throwing it to the remote correspondence. Uh, good fun for everyone in a smaller room, not in the giant hall. I'm not sure why that decision was made, but again, not in charge. As I kept explaining to people, I am talent. If you were looking for content, talk to anyone else. So I, uh, I did that, but I did not, you know, do any gaming. I don't usually do a ton of gaming at Gen Con, but not even the, the one-offs. So there was a lot of quiet drinking of bourbon in well-ventilated spaces was the rest of my Gen Con. So on that level, huge success, big success. Couldn't, couldn't ask for a quieter, Drinking of bourbon. I'm not sure I needed to go to Indianapolis to do that, but it was lovely to see everyone and heartbreaking, of course, not to see you. I filled in for you as devoted Pelgrane fans know on the Pelgrane virtual panel. I went back to my hotel room and so I beamed into Gen Con from Gen Con, which was, I guess, <laughs> the sort of recursive streamy nonsense that we do. Yes. I went to the Diana Jones Award party, which was on my birthday. I thought it was lovely of the games community to come out for my birthday and, and celebrate. And was that a, a malware affair as well? Were people more spaced out? The bar was almost empty. People were outside a lot, which I think was probably the smart play. Yeah. And then we went, you know, uh, for the announcement, it was not a giant crowd, which on the one hand, again, meant you could hear everything. So yay. Uh, on the other hand, it wasn't a giant crowd. So boo, but uh, nib card games, which is a one man operation. I want to say one man, it's one leader. And then a bunch of, I'm sure, incredibly dedicated professionals and, and helpers, but in Nigeria, putting together the Nigerian tabletop games movement. It's basically this, uh, the sort of the uh, impresario of nib card is a guy named Kenachukwu. Ogbuagu, if I have that remotely right. If I don't, my apologies to Nigeria and to Mr. Ogbuagu. But he is apparently looking around the world of tabletop games and said, Eric Lang is the most valuable and useful person in it. And so Eric and he are hooked up to sort of move Nibcard up to the next level. And so I got to talk to Eric a little bit about it. Not enough because there's never enough time to talk to Eric Lang. But it was great to sort of, in my opinion, uh, have the Diana Jones go to something that anyone who hears about immediately says, oh, that's a great idea. Oh, that's great. I wish I'd known about that. As opposed to even go to something where they're like, well, that was a very good game. You're not wrong. Right. Uh, so I, I thought that Nibcard was a, was a great winner. And I'm sure that they're going to uh, use that recognition to move from strength to strength to strength. Right. It's always great to see the Mysterious Committee awarding things that uh, people need to pay attention to rather than like note some years they note, here's this obvious trend. Mm -hmm. And yes, uh, we need to mark obvious trends, but it's even better to uh, find someone specific to uh, give an award to. So that's uh, great. Now, uh, since you were hosting the Ennies, I bet you noticed 
who won. So did, uh, was there a particular company that, uh, cleaned up or was it uh, were the riches spread between many um i think the company that did best as a company in the sense of lots of their stuff got awards was free league one of the american free leaguers was up a great deal and was very embarrassed about having to keep coming up but it was lovely and grant howitt's game heart which is i think a sequel to spire did very, very well and got a bunch of awards. And then Alice is Missing, which is from Renegade, designed by Spencer Stark, won Game of the Year and uh, was is apparently a great game that is played through the mediation of cell phones and is a game about uh, communication and deliberately being restricted in that way and therefore becoming more powerful. And I think some of the same vibe as one-to-one, that it's got that because you have to pay attention to so little data, you have to give it a great deal of weight. I haven't played it, but I've heard nothing but good things about it. And obviously, Renegade is a top-notch company, and we all love them. So uh, I guess finally, I'll ask, uh, did people know the top of your head in order to see you? Or uh, did they have to resort to uh, checking out your wardrobe as well? I at least twice got someone turn around in the elevator and say, that's Ken Height because I was talking and they are podcast listeners. <laughs> One time, if we were playing a, uh, a, an ongoing game in which we guessed which person in the elevator was the podcast listener, we both would have lost all of our money on that, <laughs> on that bet. So that was nice to see, but yeah, mostly it was, well, he's standing behind a bunch of Pell grain books. He's wearing a, a Hawaiian shirt. I guess that must be Ken. And then most of the other times there, there wasn't, you know, quite the degree of, um, uh, Hail fellow well met falling in with strangers that there is at a maskless Gen Con for, well, for, as you intimated, the obvious reasons. Um, and then, you know, good friends know me by the, the, the tiniest motions of my feet or hands. So, right. Well, I very much hope that conventions will go back to soon being uh, not just safe, but also fun. That would be the best. I very much hope that that's, uh, both of us being at a regular real Gen Con back in a quasi-normal world uh, is in the cards for next year. So let's uh, let's cross our fingers. And, of course, finger-crossing prevents all jinxing. So it does. It does. That's not how a it jinx. works. Right. It's a finger-cross. Right. Shape or form. Uh, and having avoided jinxes, uh, let's go see if we jinx ourselves in the next segment. From the dread docks of Dilathleen to the poet-burning furnaces of Zar, you are having the weirdest of dreams. A dream of an otherworldly deal on Dreamhounds of Paris. The Trail of Cthulhu campaign that mixes Lovecraft's realm of oniric fantasy with the dangerous art of the Surrealist movement. Pitting Dali, Cocteau, and Magritte against the mythos just got cheaper. Dreamhounds of Paris by Ken and Robin and Steve Dempsey is 25% off at the Pelgrain store in print with PDF or PDF only. Add its inspirational fiction companion, The Book of Ants, and get 25% off that too. Only until September 30th. With the voucher code hashtag AntDream at the Pelgrane Press online store. The crowds of glamorous Americans patting each other on the back. Well, that literally could be anywhere on the West Coast. But in fact, in this case, it's Toronto. But Robin, you were not amongst those crowds. You remained home for a home 
skillet version of the Toronto International Film Fest. And this, I believe, for you is a bit of a bittersweet Toronto International Film Fest, not least because you don't get to, you know, pack your gorp and do your uh, leg circulation exercises and begin the day with a ceremonial viewing of Stan Brackage to break down your cinematic ego. But uh, more was going on, or rather less was going on than meets the eye. Is that correct? Right. So so this is another event uh, that is a uh, now a hybrid event. And uh, this year, again, uh, Valerie and I did the virtual version, uh, the streaming version of the film festival. And we'll get to talking about the f- actual films in a minute. But it crystallized uh, something that we've uh, been slowly refusing to acknowledge over years, but beginning to acknowledge, which is that the festival, since we started going to it in the mid-80s, is not what it once was. And our objective of seeing cool, great films that we would never get to see again is completely altered by the way that the uh, role of the film festival circuit and the growing international knowledge of films and the films themselves and uh, uh, finally the availability of films through streaming has completely changed. And I think we're going to devote a whole segment to this a few episodes from now, so I won't get into it. But also, there are a couple of ways in which TIFF uh, did what it sometimes does is uh, blindsides its most loyal attendees, either with uh, disappointing changes up front. In this case, they limited the number of uh, titles that you could see to 20 or so we understood at the time. That's that's not even a film festival, barely. Yeah. And then once we finally got to see what we were allowed to get, we realized that with the package that we have always bought, uh, that the sort of top tier titles had been moved up to another package, to a premium package, with no warning. Uh, I think they meant for everybody to buy a premium package and uh, a regular package, but they didn't tell anybody, or they didn't plan that at all. And really, that was a response to many of the uh, people with the the, the film companies with big releases coming out, uh, refused to allow them to be shown virtually for uh, obvious piracy reasons. Maybe they had to move all those other things up into that to fill out the the premium slot, but whatever. It's like, this is not the first time uh, they've done this to us. So basically, uh, we've realized that the film festival we love is, first of all, it's an institution, and institutions never love you back. And secondly, everything has changed. So what we did to fill out the other 25 films that we would normally see 45 films in a film festival is I programmed uh, the Robin and Valerie International Film Festival, picking titles that had either literally played TIFF in the past that we'd never gotten around to seeing, or that could easily have played TIFF but didn't. And we programmed 25 films around the ones that we'd been given to uh, watch. And guess what? They had a much higher hit rate. They were all great. (laughs) That's what made the experience great, because even though we only had 20 films, I got nearly the same number of duds as I would normally get in a 45-slate title. So it was a sort of disappointing list of things, and I don't have any masterpieces to tell people about i have some really solid films uh, to talk about so uh, let's uh, let's transition now and uh, and start talking about the uh, actual films and my list here is in order of preference and i'm leaving out the things that are not necessarily of particular nerdy interest the sort so of the straight uh, looking particularly at the, whatnot, right. the, the genre films yeah. or these genre ish films and i should mention now you know what are we eight minutes deep in the segment that robin and i've been standing around smoking outside which you do at a cool film festival even outside of a pandemic and where we've been standing around smoking outside of is the cinema hut so 
If you are wondering, is this the Robin and Valerie's uh, September hut? That's a different hut. We'll do that another time. But as we uh, grind out our cigarettes and walk into the cool art house. Yes, we hasten to have. These are just mime cigarettes. Even in visualization, we're not really smart. <laughs> Robin, it's called art. If you just would work with me for two seconds here. Anyhow, as we walk into the cool art house uh, cinema, that's the clue. It's right there in the name. Uh, the first film playing is from Senegal, and it's called Saloum, the director Jean-Luc Herbulot. Robin, tell us about this. So uh, this is the uh, film from Africa that I keep wanting Africa to serve up, and it finally has. <laughs> it's gorgeously shot. It's tightly edited, and it's a horror Western. Yay! So uh, three gunslingers, um, members of a notorious uh, and or uh, heroic mercenary unit. Uh, you have your mastermind. You have the hard case and the magic user, and they all take an unscheduled uh, stop at this strange uh, resort in Senegal, and uh, secrets are revealed, and then uh, in a sort of from dusk till dawn style, halfway through, it turns out to be a totally different movie uh, with cool monsters with uh, both that sort of alternate between a sort of really uh, simple homegrown sort of creature design and then also CGI on top of that. And they transition between the two. And uh, this is sort of the, the film that came out of nowhere to uh, surprise and delight people. This is part of the Midnight Madness program and a real exemplar of what that program has done over the years of bringing international genre cinema to people's attention. So people loved it, got a lot of attention. So I uh, imagine it will come around in some form. And uh, when it does, you should check it out. Fantastic. Hopping across the Strait of Gibraltar from West Africa, we get to Spain for Out of Sync, uh, directed by Juanjo Jimenez-Pena. And uh, tell us about that. So this makes really inventive use of one of the core bits of uh, cinema, at least sound cinema, which is the syncing of uh, sound to action, which is something you normally don't uh, give a second thought to, except the lead character of this film is a sort of a woman who's kind of increasingly isolated in her life. She's an obsessive sound mixer for a, uh, a film uh, production, post-production company. And she starts to realize that her, uh, the mistakes she's making while, while doing a sound mix are because her hearing has changed and she is beginning to hear the world somewhat out of sync. Mm. And the space between the production of the sound and her hearing the sound increases and increases, and she begins to realize that it's not just an auditory problem, it's not a neurological problem, it's supernatural in origin. And the nice. uh, style of this is, uh, it's a realist film, it doesn't have sort of any kind of gothic vibe or, or whatever, that it's uh, very much uh, in that uh, it's a sunlit film. It looks beautiful, but it's the uh, the fear of having your senses manipulated and then what that means. And then there are definitely gothic plot elements. There's a, uh, you know, a, a secret uh, that is uncovered partway through that leads to a revelation. And once you see it, it's a, why has no one ever done this premise before? It's because it took uh, until these filmmakers uh, thought to do it. Right. So it's sort of in that sweet spot between Barbarian Sound Studio and uh, The Conversation and the man and the X, the man with X-ray eyes is what it sounds like. So if you like any of those movies, we are sure you will like Out of Sync. Is that fair to say, Robin? Yeah. And, and it's less stylized. So it's right. more like The Conversation. Exactly. Fantastic. Be, uh, yeah. Okay. Then we bop a couple of turns east to Iran for a film by Arsalan Amiri, uh, one of the uh, seemingly endless list of Iranian directors that I have never heard of. 
And this film is Zalava. Robin, do you know Arsalan Armiri or did you, were you just brought in by the words gin exorcism? This is his first film. Okay. Uh, this was another Midnight Madness title and another one. I feel one so much better is, now. Yeah. Another one that is a uh, realist film on the surface. Someone compared it to Val Luton, which is a bit of a tip off as to uh, how the presentation of the Jin go. But it's and it's set in pre-revolutionary Iran, specifically in Kurdistan. And there's this uh, pig-headed police sergeant from outside of this uh, rural area. And there's a village where people are particularly superstitious. And every year they have an exorcist come in and perform a ritual to make sure that uh, the jinn stay away and that all the horrible things that result from that. Because if someone gets possessed, then you have to shoot them in the, in the leg. And no one likes the that. Side. Right. Yeah. And there's a one person over there. He, he's missing a leg because they shot him in the wrong part of his leg. And this is a very serious issue. And in fact, this year a, a girl is uh, possessed and falls to her death. And the sergeant, he doesn't know the local ways. And so he decides to arrest the exorcist and interfere with the exorcism. And, uh, we all know what happens uh, when people ignore warnings. So is this sort of a Iranian folk horror film? Would you classify it in that space? If uh, belief in jinn is folk belief, yes. I think that's Although, a fair thing to say. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no one ends up in a wicker cage at the end. Well, so. we've previously discussed there are more endings than that. There are more endings. But than I'm that. here all day for Iranian Val Luton, even if it's not Iranian Val Luton does folk horror. Now, uh, continuing our uh, flight eastward around the world, uh, we arrive in Indonesia with a title that is so great that you imagine that it was taken from a poster in the background of a Tarantino film, Vengeance is Mine, All Others Pay Cash. And the director uh, is the mononymic Edwin Robin. None of that makes any sense. And I'm sure that the film itself is a sober, social realist uh, problem film. Am I right? Sort of. Uh, Edwin used to make a boring, slow cinema films that referenced his love of martial arts films. Well, this time around, he makes a vibrant, colorful, interesting drama that has actual full-on martial arts fights in it. It's all about the love between a couple and the way that they meet cute is that she's the bodyguard at a construction site where he's been hired to come in and beat up the boss. So they meet cute by beating the crap out of each other. And thus uh, an eternal uh, bond of love is formed, but there are uh, dark secrets of, of the past. It sort of questions masculinity. The male hero suffers from impotence and uh, the resolution of that connects to the uh, dark past of Indonesian history. So it, it's not because he just gets kicked in the junk all the time. Uh, no, it's in <laughs> fact, the reason why he wants to fight people all the time is perhaps rooted in some overcompensation. And so you hate to see it. So it is not a straight on action thriller where they identify a bad guy at the end and they chase and fight the whole time. It is a drama punctuated by a brutal 70s style uh, martial arts fights. So it's not like other Indonesian martial arts movies. It's its own very cool, interesting thing that fuses realist filmmaking, although an interesting version of that, with the uh, sort of a throwback to kind of the, the 70s uh, Shaw Brothers Hong Kong fisticuffy kind of martial arts movies. Right. And so uh, I guess this is, we always say, or at least you and I have always said, the thing we've always said is that fights in martial arts movies are like the songs in musicals. This is the movie that just sort of does that Directly, right? That's what it sounds like. Yes, very much yeah. so. They, they uh, express characterization, but it's not. And, you know, 
it has vengeance right in the title. Yeah, no, I'm not, you know, yeah. vengeance is somebody's right there. Yeah. It says so. All right. Well, um, if we allow the Pyrenees to be the marker of the global uh, boundary, we are moving from the global south to the global north. And here we are to the lovely and talented United Kingdom, plucky UK. God bless it. Uh, you know, Robin, they used to have a film industry. I was looking into that. That's very fascinating. This one is a film by Ruth Paxton, and the movie is called A Banquet. So, uh, once again, to continue a theme of all of these genre movies, this is an outwardly realistic horror movie, and it interrogates all sorts of uh, interesting issues uh, between its core mother and daughter relationship. It brings in eating disorders, the need for emotional control, uh, female rage. Uh, but what happens is that the f dad of the household uh, dies at the top of the film, and the three women who live in the household, the mother and the two daughters, uh, grow sort of increasingly isolated and vulnerable. And in particular, the elder daughter walks off into the woods during a party, sees something up in the sky, and then after that, she stops eating. And this, of course, is cause of great concern for the family, as it would be for uh, any family. But the weird thing is, she doesn't seem to be losing weight at all, or mm. she's retreating into herself. She's, uh, you know, falling into her shell. A weird transformation is going on, but she's not dying, and she's not getting any thinner. Ooh. And she's not eating anything. And the other little tip-off that I will give you, because otherwise listeners won't go and watch this, so they need to be told, it turns out to be cosmic horror. Oh, good. the only other thing that I will say. And even that is too much, except that you wouldn't watch it if I did tell right. you Right. So make that cause you to see a banquet and then forget why you're seeing a banquet when you tell other people we're watching yes. a Just banquet. Think, oh, yeah, Robin recommended a banquet. I remember that on right. the Right, yeah, that's what I remember. That was really, that sounded really good for reasons that I've forgotten. And finally, again, something that looks like it's got uh, strong realist vibes. We return in the international space to the best continent, North America, where uh, the northest of North America, Canada, has produced director Blaine Thurier and has produced this film, Kicking Blood, which is not a, a, a martial arts film about vampires, sadly, although that name would also be good for this. It is the other thing that that means. Right. Uh, so it's furthering, playing again with the addiction metaphor that we've seen in other vampire films, including the addiction. And Such the as the addiction. Such as the addiction. He's you don't notice because that, that was Abel Ferrara. He tells you what it's about. Right. Subtlety is the other guy. Yeah. And this is not, again, uh, not a horror film, but an indie drama with vampires in it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's basically about the relationship between a, a, a vampire who, uh, despite her initial reservations, meets a guy on the street and he's ready to die because his uh, uh, alcoholism has bottomed him right out. And she said, oh, I might as well eat the guy. But then she forms a bond with him and she decides... She wonders, is it possible as a vampire to kick blood? And so this is like a lot of the movies that were programmed this year. It's a chamber piece. It's got a small cast. It has a beautiful sort of wintry look. Uh, Blaine Thurier's films previously have been uh, more comedic and have not had much of a visual sense to them. Some of you may be thinking, hey, wait a minute. Isn't that a member of the New Pornographers? And yes, he's also <laughs> in the band, the New Pornographers. And so again, don't Expect a big movie. Don't expect a, a conventional horror movie with uh, thrills, but it's a cool little moody, wintry, frosty uh, character piece. And that brings us, Ken, to the to the end of my relatively short list of films that I can uh, recommend to uh, 
listeners of the show, so keep an eye for those. And uh, next year, I don't know, maybe I'll be doing a segment on the first annual Robin and Valerie International Film Festival. Because well, next we year, can't wait for that, right? We, we should we could do perhaps you know who can say you know if if we're all swimming in Patreon money. Uh, maybe maybe it could be a, a guided thing, and everyone could like watch along with you and 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 enjoy. I could certainly release the, the programming schedule. At yeah, any rate. this technology exists. Yes, um, but that's for the future. This is the present, and that was the past. These were all films that were released through TIFF, which means they will be cycling into your streaming services and other film festivals and various art house programming in the traditional way. We assume, correct? Yes, and so. Uh, and who knows how long it'll take now. It used to be reliably these titles would take, you know, a few of them would appear immediately, the big profile ones, and uh, and then the other ones would filter right. But everything's up in the air now. Windows are shorter. There's more places that are taking things. So who the heck knows? These could pop up tomorrow. I don't know. At any minute. So uh, the only thing to do is just remember that you're going to watch a banquet and you've forgotten why. That's all that you have to remember. Exactly. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Support for this podcast is always applicable. Join such beloved Patreon backers as Tom Powell, The Molten Sulfur Blog, Alex Johnston, Corey Welch, and David Muscari. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into a gaming hut. Rather than being at the front of the show, the gaming hut is nestled deep in the back of the show, uh, surely not because Gen Con and uh, Toronto Film Festival are more important than gaming, but just because uh, I believe that we wanted to think. We wanted to have a bit of a... A bit of a contemplative moment as we examine yet another of the axes of game design that I idly tossed off on Twitter while waiting in an airport. And, you know, this is basically how Wittgenstein did his best work. <laughs> if his flight to Bavaria had not been delayed, right. uh, we would have only gotten half of his work. Exactly. Uh, so um, with that in mind, uh, this axis of game design is one that I entitled applicability. And I, I think this one, unlike the ones where Robin has to say, what on earth were you about? 
I think we all sort of understand what that is, right, Robin? I have no idea. You have no idea. <laughs> what, what is it? it is, is applicability, it gives you rules that allow you to fulfill the core activity of the game and no other rules? Right. That it, it is, um, to what extent is this game applicable to the core activity or to the problem the game sets itself or to the experience the game wishes to create versus to what degree are these just any old rules because we've all heard why you can play any game with any rule set and while that is true you can also go on the highway with anything but we prefer cars so that's what applicability is is my one of my things i've always said is that if you say your game is about love there should be a mechanic that engages with love that you can't expect or count on emergent story to do the job of game design if you want that do something else. That's what theater is. But if you want to game design it, have something for it. And that is my, my thing that I always say. And to the extent that I remember any of this, I believe that was what applicability uh, was aiming for. Robin, did right. that clear things up or make things it, it did, more but nonsensical? Of course, fortunately, in order to generate 15 minutes of material, that of course leads to another question, which is to what extent does that now overlap with the way that we adjusted one of your previous principles into the narrow versus wide slider. So have we sort of run over and, and uh, have we gazumped applicability and, and already incorporated into something we've already talked about? Or is this different than narrowness versus width? I mean, I, I feel like narrowness versus width is one thing. So if, if for example, let us assume, and this is my go-to example, uh, as people will remember, let us assume we are making a game about Dumas' Three Musketeers. And we can assume a game that is only about Dumas Three Musketeers, narrow, and a game that is about any kind of guy is doing anything, wide. So all of GURPS versus uh, On Guard versus that even better game that was about uh, rapier fighting that had kitties and doggies in the illustrations. I forget what it was called, but it was very good. So that, but the applicability axis is Three Musketeers is about sword fights. How much of this game's uh, mechanics are specifically about sword fights. Also, Three Musketeers is about love and romance. So, so a game that is narrowly about the Three Musketeers could be applicable to either sword fights or romance, or in theory, both. But the applicability is, I feel like, it's the difference between having the wrench that is either a, a, a three sixteenths wrench or a adjustable wrench, and how tightly did you screw the wrench down? So, in a way, applicability can be fed from broad versus narrow, but I feel like broad versus narrow is what is the game in, in, intended to approach, and then applicability is almost a, and how does it do that, and with the implied, and how well does it do that? If, if, right. if you'll allow that, no doubt, ad hoc, back-channel, hasty version of trying to save a, an axis. Right. So, uh, the next thing we've been trying to do with these principles is turn them into axes in which uh, it is a set of trade-offs mm -hmm. between two different things on this spectrum. And so if we say that something is either applicable or it is, what is the good thing that's the opposite of that? And I guess it's generic applicable versus versatile. Yeah. Versus versatile or versus generic. Yeah. And I think right. versatile sounds, sounds nicer. And with right. many of these sliders, the fun thing that you can do is you can recognize that sliders can, can bend around. So for example, the gumshoe engine, I think is an example of something that is both versatile in that we have managed to do a lot more with it than I think either of us thought was possible in 2008, but it's also still 
very applicable to the core problem of investigation, even if it is less applicable to the core problem of mental health or the core problem of whatever else, right? Because right. fortunately, it turns out that investigation is actually the secret core of almost all adventure. Yeah, right. <laughs> Boy, image of us wiping our brows, woo, dodged a bullet there. Yeah. So I feel like one of the things that is uh, becomes the art of game design is working with a bunch of these different axes in tandem and finding places where you get the feel of a versatile game a la gumshoe, but you get the advantages, the gripping power of applicability. Similarly, that any given gumshoe game is relatively narrow, but that the whole spectrum of gumshoe can be seen as fairly broad or even in a relatively narrow gumshoe, you can then open up a fractal and have a broad spectrum of things to do in it. For example, in Ashen Stars, you can do a lot of uh, Star Trek-y adventures, even if the absolute narrow end of that is you're investigating things gone wrong on a planet, right? Right. Because very often with uh, the way that gumshoe games are applicable is they uh, give you a very set core activity uh, that is like you are interstellar space problem solvers, or you are art students in Paris, or you are burned agents fleeing from vampires. Those are all very specific. And mm-hmm. so I think this is a slider that also is about the uh, range of possible identities of the player characters. And of course, GURPS is the other side of that. But often a GM will impose a an identity in order to have a specific GURPS game. Uh, so they're not actually as far apart as we're uh, as we might uh, think. And also, I guess this is about how many core activities it is intended to support. And so you can have a range, as you suggest, of activities within the core activity, uh, solving space problems, lots of different things to do there. Mm -hmm. Uh, You could, you know, spin that out over many, many seasons of the television or game. But the other side of this is, I guess, a game that's like, this is set in Dumas, France, but here's 12 different possible sets of people you could be and 12 uh, quite different adventures that you could be pursuing in this world. So something that I guess is very setting focused possibly can be quite versatile because here's a world, there's all these different things going on. Traveler, I guess, is the other example of sort of a hyper versatile game in terms of what the core activity is because it just says you're in space, you were space Marines probably previously before those of you who survived character generation now you're going to figure out what to do. And the initial version of Traveler, at any rate, imposes no restrictions on that. It is absolutely versatile in that anything you can do in a spaceship, tell your GM, well, here's some information on trading routes in case they want to trade. But other than that, what sort of trouble you get into, that's uh, up to you and your GM to figure out. Yeah, the um, I, I think that the question of applicability, at least as I see it, is sort of the question that would be asked if in Ashen Stars you didn't have a dedicated space combat system. So Ashen Stars, identical to itself, if the way you did space combat was you just had a dedicated contest and the guy with the best spaceship command modified by spaceship do a contest against another guy like every other contest. Um, because there is specific space combat mechanics, I would argue that that would move Ashen Stars toward the applicability end of the spectrum, because there is something that is specifically applicable mechanically to a specific activity in the game, as opposed to the game certainly does allow you to own a spaceship, 
which is, you know, the, with the Traveler example that you're talking about. Right. And ironically, you know, if I was to do another Ash and Stars, I might ask myself, oh, does it need to have this thing or can I? But that's part of my whole uh, when I'm looking again at a rule says like, what can I take out? Uh, which is probably another uh, axis. So we've covered your principles and turned them into axes. So next week, uh, we're going to look at a couple of things that I think about when I'm designing a tabletop role-playing game and uh, see if those count as uh, principles or axes or both. But until then, it's time for us to uh, close up the gaming hut and uh, see what awaits us in our final segment of this here episode. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes in entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin, and this time around, beloved donor Charles Cooley asks, what sort of a liptony was there in 1877 Romania? I'm starting a steampunk campaign where the signs of a minor noble are hunting monsters. Dracula's getting ready to move to London, and the Benedetti are afoot, but are there other goings on? And I'm sure this is a question everybody else has been waiting to hear, what cool things are going on in 1877 Romania, and... Uh, Charles has asked exactly the right person, Ken. So w what did you find at your veritable fingertips uh, to answer this question? I mean, one of the things about Romania in 1877, as opposed to Romania even in 1897, is that it's a very young country. It's just become independent in, depending on who you listen to, 1862 is the is the sort of the consensus answer. But it's under, you know, treaty protections of the great powers, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's just beginning to coalesce as a nation. So in the next two generations, there's going to be armies of cool Romanian scientists and writers and poets and nationalists and spies. Right now, not a ton of Romanians getting up to activities. Obviously, it's still being governed by German aristocrats, so you can import anything you like from Germany into Romania. This is over and above, of course, the fact that Transylvania is very heavily settled by German-speaking uh, so-called Saxon settlers. And, and so Romania at this point is still kind of a, a blank script to write your bigger story on. And so if you have a bigger story, absolutely go ahead and do it in Romania. You make the point about Dracula in, you know, another 20 odd years, he's going to go uh, uh, make his play for London. Right now he's just sitting in his castle 
uh, eating babies, uh, hanging out. And this, I think, is the case with a lot of uh, Romanian encounters, that if you don't go looking for them, you're probably not going to find them. That said, there are a couple of few. Um, when you say steampunk, I, of course, immediately begin with actual science, because actual science done in an excitingly wrong way is the best kind of science. Uh, the only scientist in Bulgaria, the only physicist, rather, in Romania at this moment is also a mathematician, and his name is Emmanuel Bacaloglu, and he is teaching at the University of Bucharest and basically teaching all the other physicists. So if you're looking for a guy, a lot of his mathematics are about curved linear geometry. So if you're looking for a guy to do non-Euclidean stuff, I think Bacaloglu is your guy. Maybe he's building a, a wormhole or a or a time machine, lots of good stuff that uh, Bacaloglu could be up to. He's cool. And then on the softer side of science, we have a uh, folklorist and ethnobotanist, born 1847, named Simeon Florian Marion. And he's out gathering information about all the spooky stuff in Romania. And what do you eat to see the spooky stuff in Romania? And this, of course, is, you know, it's half your folk horror and all of your druids. And every kind of thing about. So if you want someone to, to lead you into a mushroom circle. Exactly. Uh, to have eaten your mushroom circle or that uh, you need to rescue from a mushroom circle. He's your guy. Exactly. Uh, Simeon Florian Marian is your guy. And then I found a bandit, but the bandit sadly is in Hungary. He's on the other side of the Carpathians, but he is a wanted bandit. So maybe he flees over the Carpathians into Romania or into Transylvania, at least where fellow Hungarians will shelter him, and his name is Savanyu Yoska, which means Sour Joe. <laughs> and he becomes a sort of a bandit hero in the way that Jesse James did in Hungarian dime novels, basically, in the 20s and 30s. So you can tell that he's got the charisma and the cred, despite being tiny. He's only five foot two, and he uh, robs the rich, and he doesn't do it in sort of the anodyne way that the Robin Hood legends have been passed down to us. No, he like cuts off their fingers and stuff. Yeah, (laughs) the real bandit is a hard character. He's a hard case, and he's got his uh, his gang of folks, and he's rising to his position. And again, he's in Western Hungary near like Balaton. He is not in Romania, but he could be fleeing into Romania, and he could be known to the Hungarian peasantry of Romania. You know, again, this Transylvania at this point is under the kingdom of Hungary. It's not under the Romanians. So even Dracula is still a Hungarian citizen, probably, you know, much as he would uh, maybe claim not to be, but there we are. Well, that, that explains the accent, right? He wanders across the Carpathians just like he does. And he does say that he has the blood of Adela in his veins, not the blood of, you know, some Johnny come lately impaler guy. So that's, uh, that's a story. So you have, um, you, we got a bandit, we got a, we got a folklorist. And then now I figure anyone who's doing this has already opened up the Dracula dossier. They've opened up Knights Black Agents. They've seen all the cool vampires that there are, the, the Moroi and the Strigoi. But did you pay attention to the Solomonari? This is your local magic users. And the Solomonari are in Hermannstadt, which is again in Transylvania now. It was in Transylvania then, or Shibiu is what it's called now. And the Solomonari are the guys that run the black school. They teach magic. They practice magic. Some of them are red-haired and wander around doing their mysterious uh, activities. They can be literally up to anything. Solomonari merely means they use the arts of Solomon. And like I need to remind anyone, the arts of Solomon include summoning demons. So uh, the Solomonari are maybe up to no good, and they do live 
up in the high lake country in Transylvania. So they're, um, they're, they're sneaky. They, they rise, they ride a dragon sometimes to make it uh, rain. Um, so that's a thing. You don't like that. Right. And of course, these can be new steampunky Solomonari. Right. Or there can be a new generation of sort of uh, sciencey ones because, of course, if you're in Romania, you don't recognize this newfangled distinction between science and magic. It's all one thing. So, uh, you know, the dragon that you ride, uh, maybe that's a, a cool, fancy train that you're uh, sending through the mountains. Or, an, so, or a skyship. A skyship. So, yeah. you know, some of these people can definitely be wearing hats and goggles. Right. And the uh, Romanian giants are the Uriazi. They're worth hunting down. They live in caves, some of them, and they show up again. The steampunk era, the 1870s, all over the civilized world, uh, people are making up giants. Uh, people are finding them in the Grand Canyon. They're theorizing that they live off in India. They have all manner of, of, of giants are the, are the Bigfoot of the 1870s. And I feel uh, like. So are these ones friendly giants or unfriendly? Uriazi are generally bad. They, uh, include the guys that build, uh, barrel mounds. They include the guys that, uh, hide in the mountains and, you know, shove your carriage off, uh, the path. And, uh, they also do include the sort of, uh, wise giants that have all the knowledges of the earth. But maybe you don't want to give it to you, you tiny jerk. Maybe they were angered by Sour Joe, and now they hate all tiny people. Who can say, right? Yeah, the Uriaji are are kind of fun. And they and probably interesting. hate airships, first of all. Well, they're they're not they're not fans. I'll, I'll wager right. because they're you know what is the air to you is just like eye level to giants. So if the player characters are driving their new fancy airship across the mountains, I think that's a pretty good start to introduction to the to the Uriaji is. Uh, one of them decides to swat them out of the sky. Especially if they've, you know, basically been building their identity around, we keep people from going over this mountain pass, and then you're just flying over the mountain pass. That seems like a Les Majesty thing to do to a giant, I would think. The shapeshifters are usually female uh, fairies. Uh, they are called the Ilgale or Valve. There's a billion different kinds of those because it's a fairy legend, but I think adds a, a lovely distaff monster that, that we all need. And also, shapeshifting is, is just good fun, I, I think, for any game. Um, the Romanian fairy, uh, this is your, you know, again, maybe part of your folk horror, maybe something that Simeon Floria Marian gets you into. And it also, uh, as steampunk people are building railroads, they're going to be angering the fairies because that's what railroads do. Well, they, they screw up the ley lines. Yeah, not least. Yeah, and I suppose there also could be some uh, trader fairies who are interested in this whole steam technology or just trying to figure out how to make it work so that they can uh, curse it. And it's probably full of iron too, right? Yeah, That's right. bad. You don't like that if you're a fairy. And I, I, I guess I should mention that Dracula uh, canonically is very interested in new technology. So he is uh, on record as being fascinated by, by the railroads and uh, getting Harker to tell him all about that sort of thing. So maybe this is the guy who's paying you to fly your Zeppelin over the giants or um, mess with the Solomonari that your patron uh, you think is, uh, you know, just out to slay all the monsters, but your patron is actually the worst monster of them all. Dracula, and he just wants to get your, you know, 
get your sky ship so that he can fly to London and not go over uh, running water. Have to be in a coma the whole time. And also he wants to eliminate the local competition. I'm sure that vampires and fairies, we know that even from White Wolf, they don't get along. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it, there's only so many puffy shirts available, even in Romania. And you, you know, you, you hate to see someone else get all your puffy shirts. I feel like that's a legitimate concern. That is the number one resource yes. contended uh, for in any steampunk game. And then, uh, I guess at the end of your steampunk, uh, research, I at least go to the other big names from fiction. Obviously, uh, Charles mentions Dracula, the biggest of names, but Gogol, Nikolai Gogol has put a ghostly vengeful knight in the Carpathians in his short story, A Terrible Vengeance. I don't know if the knight has a name, but you know, I'm sure that you can read the story and then find out. But, uh, a ghostly knight seems like a great thing to have in a monster hunting campaign. And then, of course, Jules Verne legendarily wrote a novel, a short novel called The Carpathian Castle or A Castle in the Carpathians. And he has Baron de Gortz who hides out in the Carpathians and uh, uses the sinister arts of sound recording to make it seem haunted. Spooky. And uh, holograms as well. He can uh, make ghosts appear thanks to holograms. I don't so think he's probably that- generating a bunch of fake ghostly vengeful nights. Right. And he's going to lull you into a false sense of security so that when you meet the real one, uh, you think, oh, it's just another one of the Baron's holograms. And then... <laughs> It yep. stabs you with its ghost. A terrible vengeance has occurred. Yeah, I, I think that DeGortz is another possible, you know, technical mastermind for you to be hunting uh, monsters on behalf of, or as you say, that he is sort of, you know, old man wither- withersing it and making fake monsters to uh, keep other people away from his supply of puffy shirts or whatever else it is that he's looking to protect in the Carpathians somewhere. So uh, I would say you've got a Jules Verne guy, you've got Dracula, you've got a tiny bandit. You've got uh, magicians of Solomon, giants, fairies, uh, real ghosts, hologram ghosts. I think that should fill up Romania. And then obviously, the deeper you get into Romanian politics at the time, obviously, because it's a literal uh, Ruritanian monarchy in many ways, the more fun you have there for storylines. But in terms of the wildness and the weirdness of the elliptony, you are in that moment where Romanian folk culture... And, or, and I should say cultures, because there is not a national folk culture yet, are emerging and meeting these sort of uh, ratiocinated uh, European uh, notions such as theosophy and uh, Freemasonry and what will become the rise of ritual magic under the Golden Dawn. So that's good fun there. I was not able to find any, you know, uh, air, mysterious airship sightings in Romania, but there's lots and lots of uh, well, weird they comments and characters. They have to like bring that. their airship in. Right, so that they can be weirdly seen. So I think we've gone, obviously, at the beginning of this, we had one person, Charles, who wanted to run a game in 1877 Romania. Now we have countless numbers of people who want to run out and do that. Is the first scenario, uh, you were hired in London, possibly as a pan-national group, to fly the uh, airship over the Carpathians? And then what uh, what would you pick out of all of this list as your introductory Romanian steampunk threat. I think I would probably either present the ghostly knight because that's sort of, you know, begin with the Gothic and move up. I like that vibe. And the ghostly knight could also prefigure as we suggested Baron de Gortz, or I would uh, have them meet the beginnings of the Solomonari. I would have them meet one of the Solomonars and tangle with him. And then later realize, Oh, there's more and worse. And what's worse is, some of them are also building 
their dragon ship that they're going to fly around and, and uh, make uh, lightning and thunder and rain happen from. And so we have both a magical monstery threat and a technical threat. Well, now that we've got two whole threats uh, for uh, your player characters uh, to confront, I think that uh, Ken, you and I have, have done our job. You can go uh, continue to recover from Gen Con. I can go and continue to recover from TIFF slash RVIF. And we'll be back uh, next week with uh, more of the similar stuff. Having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Protect this podcast from steampunks, Romanian and otherwise by joining such illustrious backers as Aryan Poutsma, Ryan Malcolm, Drew Eichholz, Will Ferguson, and Fifi Payat, and Daniel Markwig. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Prepare for winter with our latest design, Cthulhu Canada. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>